2: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show.
3: Thank you, Scott. Good weekend to you as well. And happy more new records Friday. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Brian Sullivan. Here's what's ahead. Call them the trillion dollar horseman alphabet joining the four comma club as investors continue to bet on tech giants. But is this kind of top heavy market healthy for the markets? Plus, workers needed a lot of them one area of the jobs market that is spending big to train employees in a tight labor market. So where can we find more than 4 million workers? And Facebook, Fitbit, and a fight, kind of, between NFL owners. All that's ahead But we begin with today's Markets. And once again, Seema Modi at the New York, your middle name is now going to be record because it's just going to be Seema Record Modi because every time you're on, we're hitting new records, Seema.
4: <laughs> I'll take it, Brian, from you any day. Stocks continuing their steady ascent to historic highs. As you were just pointing out, we typically see a slightly more defensive tone as we head into a long weekend. So watch out for, the da- for that. The Dow currently up 29 points. And we should point out that we did see new highs in Japan and Europe this morning. Despite the drag from high-profile names like Uber, and lift last year. The Renaissance IPO ETF actually hitting an all-time high just in the last hour. I want to point your attention to Phoenix Tree Holdings. That is one of China's largest co-living platforms. It went public here at the NYSE. Pricing a downsized IPO at 13.50 a share. That was well below the expected range. The stock is down 3%. Fundraising by Chinese companies on Wall Street plunged last year. In fact, the average Chinese issuer is down 18% since going public. The question now is whether the pause in U.S.-China trade 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 tensions will improve the IPO backdrop for some of these Chinese listed names. Brian, back to you.
3: All right. Good stuff there, Seema. Thank you very much. All right. So let's begin this program with the four comma club, the trillion dollar horseman, whatever you want to call it, Alphabet finally crossing that high watermark, notching a market cap of one trillion dollars. Let's put this into a wee bit of context, shall we? The only time the top five market caps are concentrated in one sector like this, all five biggest companies were in the same group, was back in 1980, and they were in the oil industry. Of course, that year marked the end of what had been a pretty good run. Here to take a closer look at whether this should give you some pause is Bill Smead, CEO and CIO of Smead Capital Management, and James Chalkmock, partner at Clockwise Capital. Good to see you as well. Bill, I want to start with you. Uh, Are you comparing this to all the way back in 1980 when it was Exxon and Mobil and Texaco that were leading
5: the charts? Brian, it's worse than you described, Uh, 12 of the 20 largest market caps at the end of 1980 in the Fortune 500 were oil companies. 12. At the height of the dot-com bubble at the end of 99 and early 2000, only three of the five top market cap companies were tech related. I think Exxon and GE were still in the top five market caps, and Microsoft and Cisco and Intel and others took turns uh, being the largest market cap company at that, that time. But why is that bad, Bill? Why is that wrong? Because there's only a few things that are guaranteed in the investment business, Brian. And the number one thing that's guaranteed is things will change. Uh, in, in all of our economics classes, we learned that if something is extremely profitable from a, from a micro or macro standpoint, people will keep coming in and providing new competition to that, and, and, and marginal profit gets driven to, to zero. In the stock market, the thing that's been the most profitable has, buy, has been buying revenue growth stories in an era where revenue growth is hard to come by. So our argument is this is the antithesis of 1981. It's exactly the Mm -hmm. opposite of 1981 because 4.3 percent of the index is in in energy. And back then it was 29 percent. So think, think about what that means for technology if you want to make above average returns over the next 10 years.
6: Yeah. James, what do you think? Are you worried about it? I mean look, there's nothing magical about the trillion dollar valuations. It's just the fact that the addressable markets are larger than they've ever been. Now, looking back historically, only 15% of the time has the market traded north of 20 times. We're actually in one of those periods. Now, if you look at the fangs more specifically, you know, they are actually not in those bleed territory, but we are making a call for 2020 that they are at or approaching peak valuations. Now, the question is you know, how sustainable are these trillion-plus-dollar valuations? And I think what will happen is these companies will bifurcate into two. On the one side, you'll have the companies that can continue to drive growth levers out of the existing infrastructure built over the last decade, and the other half which will have to um, uh, uh, rely on third parties to drive that growth. I think Google, now a new entrant into the group, will ha- is in the former camp, while Apple and Amazon are continuing to be advantaged. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the, in well,
3: the I, I, guess, I guess, James, the question, nobody probably can actually answer it because we don't know, but, but take your best guess. If and when investors grow tired of those five or six companies that we just talked about, the Apples, Amazons, Microsofts, Googles, whatever, and they start to sell them because they just think they're overvalued, will they put money into other parts of the market or will they take their ball and go home? Because if they do that, that puts the entire market at
6: risk. I mean, look, the, the market is slightly overvalued. You know, if you look at the historical context, the slim majority of stocks are trading north of that 20 times threshold. Uh, but I think if you look at the tech se- uh, sector and companies more specifically, you know, I think they are not in nosebleed territory, uh, you know, at this time. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's really about how do you identify the companies within uh, the sector that uh, can continue to drive growth in, in new forms yeah. uh, versus relying on third parties like advertisers right. to come onto the platform. And,
3: and Bill, I see, to jump, I see itching to jump yeah. in here.
5: Yeah, it, it, just think about it for just a minute. In 1980, when, when uh, energy had all the top names, there was no indexing. Now, 50 to 70 percent of the large cap money is agnostic indexed. If history is any guide, and this is the best of times that Fang will ever see, and it, whether it be a year from now or three years from now or four years from now, when it runs out of gas, uh, the, the, the index is cursed. The agnostic investor is cursed by this concentration because the indexes are going to be at the mercy of this massive concentration. The last time this happened is when the dot-com bubble broke. Uh, tech was about the same part of the S&P, yeah. and it went, it went down 80%, crucified the index for 40%, and yes, some money did trickle into the other ones, uh, but as Rob Arnott, at a research affiliate, pointed out recently, the gap between value and growth has virtually never been this big, and certainly it's gone on longer, so you would expect the misery to be more substantial when it, it finally happens. So, So the beauty of it is I tell people, you can't hold your breath until these fangs break. But when whatever set of circumstances, and by the way, we think it will be underlying economic growth driven by 90 million millennials wanting the things that 65 million Gen Xers wanted in the household formation. You saw the housing starts today. The housing starts are going to explode. Auto, Auto purchases are going to be great because people are waiting until they're 30 to get a driver's license, but we're... Growing yeah. driver's license, the fastest we have any time in 50 years. There's, so, a, there's a lot. So,
3: Bill, I got, Bill I've, I've got to. St- I, listen, I love the passion. I love the context. I think it's an important topic. I've also got a clock that I've got to adhere to. So, Bill, Bill Smead, we'll get you back on again with James. It's an important topic. Market structure certainly maybe the most sort of unknown thing out there. All right. A big surprise in the housing market with home buildings surging to a 13-year high in December. Diane Olick live in Washington. With some of these big-time numbers, Diana.
0: Yeah, really big time, especially for the big builder stocks today, Brian. The home construction ETF, that symbol ITB, is hitting a more than 18-year high. And that's after a pretty big run-up just last year, all thanks to December housing starts, which jumped nearly 17% for the month and were about 41% higher annually. That's the highest level since December of 2006. Now, break it down by type single family, up 11% for the month to the highest level since June of 2007. Multifamily also surged 32%. Regionally starts were strongest in the Midwest and the South. Single family was weaker in the West and Northeast. Now, building permits, which are an indicator of future construction, they were down for the month for both single and multifamily, but single family was almost 11% higher compared with December of last year while multifamily about 3% lower. Now, low mortgage rates are driving demand and builders are finally shifting to those cheaper products. So, that's why we're seeing all this demand now, Brian.
3: All right, Diana, we'll look with some big time housing numbers. Thank you very much, Diana. All right, do not go anywhere, folks. We are just getting started. Here's what else is coming up on The Exchange.
7: Coming up, the head of the business roundtable tells us what corporate America is saying about this week's big two trade deals. Plus, the markets continuing their historic run. Will it continue? We'll get the technical take. And a triple play for Facebook. A lawsuit, a change in its WhatsApp strategy, and maybe TV shows aren't a great bet. This is The Exchange on CNBC.
8: What's on the horizon for financial markets?
3: And welcome back to the exchange. Has the signing of the phase one trade deal and the new NAFTA helped boost CEO confidence? Yes. So says your next guest. Let's find out why. Steve Island is president and CEO of the conference board and a CBC contributor. And Steve, is it because they're glad that this uncertainty is sort of kind of mostly off the table? Or is it that they maybe believe that those two deals signed this week are going to
9: actually help the economy? Well, I think it's a little bit of both, Brian. You know, first of all, CEOs hate uncertainty. And we've had this trade skirmish going on for almost two years now, and with promises of ever increasing levels of tariffs and, you know, whatever else came. Lots of threats going on back and forth between the U.S. and China. So, too, on the USMCA. You know, these are our biggest trading partners with very integrated supply chains in North America. And that's been sitting there as well. So this past week has really been a great week. And CEOs are very happy with the level of certainty. Now, the naysayers will say, well, you know, the China deal didn't go far enough. It didn't provide big enough protections. You know, it didn't, yada, yada. But I think the point is we have some certainty. We have some peace. The new tariffs are not going into effect. And we've promised to go and start talking on phase two. USMCA allows investment north and south. You know, remember, NAFTA quadrupled the amount of trade north and south with Canada and Mexico. This is all good, Brian.
3: Is there any negatives here, Steve? It can't all be good because we don't have, we still have tariffs, as we talked
9: about yesterday. We don't have phase two. We don't have a lot of concrete yet, do we? Yeah, no, and we haven't solved global warming, and, you know, China's not democracy. But, you know, know, yes, this is what people say. It doesn't go far enough. But I think... Remember, the first thing with CEOs is they need some level of uh, terra firma in order to plan going forward. And now we have that. You know what it is. If you know what it is, even with the tariffs, you know, it'll go forward. And I think most CEOs are savvy enough to understand that the tariffs can't just be on China's side. We had to put them in order to create a negotiating platform. So now the question is, will China abide by this? You know, will they start abiding by the WTO rules? Will they start providing the IP protections, will they really stop demanding the turnover of IP to the state-owned enterprises? What do you think? Oh, no, it's all
3: this, this little matter of actually doing what you doing, say you're going yeah. that's,
9: the, that's the hard part, right? That's the hard Do you think, the they, part? Will. Do you and think they will, Steve? You know, they, they have been uh, prickly on this, Brian, and, and this is the key thing. We've got to watch, because if you see any sliding on their part, then it just means that they're going to ignore the whole thing and then confidence will go. You mentioned CEO confidence. CEO confidence had been going down throughout the the course of 19. It's now starting to percolate back up. So this has the trade deal has had a big impact on CEO confidence. And remember, consumer confidence globally just came out. The the conference board issued it last last uh, couple of days and globally we're at all-time record highs. It's been very good you know, for the past couple of years, the U.S. is sitting at a record high. So consumers have been ahead of yeah. uh, the CEOs in confidence for the past couple of years.
3: Well, now that we've got the USMCA done, the new NAFTA, do you believe that the people that had been sort of holding out investing in stuff in Mexico
9: will now put that capital to work? I think that's right. I think Mexico will be the greatest beneficiary because they're the natural place for manufacturing. Remember, wages go up, you know, the amount of content in cars goes up to 75%. So I think jobs will be created in, in all three countries, but Mexico will be in great shape. So this is really good. Now, here's the deal, Brian. We've got China, you know, now settled a little bit. We've got USMCA. Now it's Europe. In 2020, It's going to be an interesting situation both with airplanes. You know, you've got the whole Airbus-Boeing situation coming off of 737 MAX. And you have the German automobile industry where, you know, the administration has been making a lot of noise there. Those those are the two areas to watch in Europe in 2020. All right, Steve
3: Odlin, we appreciate the views. And a little bump there in CEO confidence. Steve, thank you very much. See you soon. Thank you. All right, on deck. Why and where there's a bit of a growing crisis in the job market and what's being done to solve it? Plus, oh, snap, Snapchat shares, they're up 230% in a year. But Steve Grasso says that run is not done, and he is with us ahead. And as a reminder, you can always watch us or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. Check it out. We're back in two minutes.
11: At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come
4: in today to get your holiday goodies there on time.
12: If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is,
4: I don't want
2: my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there.
12: Because,
1: If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak
10: then
12: this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free,
10: confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.
3: All right, welcome back. You can call this stock rally whatever you want. Deserved. Overdone. Fed-induced. But whatever you call it, it has been a juggernaut. And much attention now is being posed to one simple question. How long can this possibly last? Let's now bring in Steve Grasso, Director of Institutional Sales with Stuart Frankel, for a little bit of technical analysis and chart magic on this rally. What do you (laughs) think, Steve? A lot of gas left in the tank? Yeah, you know, the way you have to look at technicals, Brian, is
1: you have to look at from where we came. And where we could possibly go to so why don't we just look back at this chart so what's missing that we we, we didn't want to go so far back to lose a lot of the contact. so let's go back to December uh, September and December of 2018 we went back to uh, a level basically on the dip to 2350 where did we come from? Basically, was around that twenty nine hundred and change level. So, if you take these two in context and you spit out some some overshoot levels, you come up with pretty much where we are right here. But let's call it thirty three ninety five, all the way up to if you want to talk about real gas left in the tank, thirty five thirty five. Those are two tremendous levels. So we're going to lose a lot of bull, uh, bears and a lot of uh, rational people if we spit out this number. So let's forget about the thirty-five, thirty-five. This is the next logical resistance level for us. It's totally reasonable, about yeah. 2% up from here. If we have to dive here, that's about 6% up from there. But... Let's be rational. What happens if this doesn't work out? So, what you want to look at is the 20 day moving average, which is basically your momentum indicator. And where is that level? 3250, let's call it.
3: Okay, that's the the level we've got to watch. If we start to roll over a little bit, 3250 might be some kind of support. That, Steve, is a very good looking chart. A better looking (laughs) chart, at least in the near term, is I think your favorite single stock right now, and that is Snapchat. Exactly. So for me, so I've been involved
1: in this trade. I've recommended this trade. I've been on Fast Money. I pointed out charts on this trade. So for me, I'm long it around $14. Now when you start to see, I, I think you mentioned it the other night on air, Brian, the $17 mark. That was what? The IPO price of SNAP. So once a chart, once a stock hits the IPO price after being below for so long, naturally what you get is a lot of buy through buyers. And immediately once you hit that level, what does the analyst community do? They start raising price targets because they don't want to look foolish, right? So it's human nature. So now we have a street high today of 24 that UBS put on it. And that was a matching street high. There was already a 24 on it. And most of them are clustering around $20, $21. J.P. Morgan is a $20 mm-hmm. price target. Where do I think this thing goes? I think it probably goes to 21 224 and if you start to eclipse that i think you have a real potential here to break out substantially so everyone gets nervous on, on on snap brian because of where it came from look at this level right here so everyone says oh my lord i don't want to be involved in any stock like that i'll tell you one thing these are the only stocks i want to be involved in with charts like this. So I think you yeah. have the ability, rationally, 21 to 24. I'm staying long. I think I'm going to get $30 out of this stock.
3: Wow. $30 call and snap. I know you've been right on the mark on this, Steve Grass. So Thank you very much, buddy. We, we appreciate you joining us. See you this weekend. All right. Take care. Thanks, bud. All right. Let's get a CNBC News update. Here now once again is Sue Herrera.
8: Sue. Hello, Brian. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. White House economic adviser Larry Kudlow telling reporters that Judy Shelton, one of President Trump's picks to serve on the Federal Reserve Board, should have no trouble winning Senate confirmation.
2: I think uh, she will work very well inside the Fed. She's a brilliant woman. She's had a lot of experience in top jobs, including this current position in the Bank for Reconstruction, and um, she'll be a good addition to to
7: to the board.
8: The CDC now says that the flu is widespread in every state except Oregon and Hawaii. 32 states are reporting high activity, which is actually a decrease from last week's 33. More than 6,600 people have died from the flu. And art experts have confirmed that a painting discovered hidden inside an Italian art gallery's walls is indeed Gustav Klimt's Portrait of a Lady. It was reported stolen from the gallery nearly 23 years ago. Questions still unanswered, who took it, and whether it actually ever left the museum's property. It's a who-done-it. That's the news update this hour. Brian, back to you.
3: Sounds like maybe it's a no-one-done-it.
8: Could be.
3: Right, would they just plaster over the <laughs> uh, maybe during construction? Who knows? Vas is das. Let's just build a wall. <laughs> All right, Su Herrera, thank you very much. All right, here, here's what else is coming up on the exchange.
7: Ahead, Facebook may be scrapping one of its most controversial plans. Fitbit may soon be able to monitor your oxygen. One sector can't find the right employees, so it's spending big to woo them. And it's not the sector you think. It's all coming up on The Exchange.
3: Facebook, Fitbit, Space, and football owners are a bit upset. It is time for What Else Rapid Fire here now to talk about it. Eric Chemi, Morgan Brandon, and CNBC contributor Ed Lee, reporter. For the New York Times. All right, first up, according to reports, Facebook is pausing the rollout of ads within WhatsApp, though it says it still could be a long term possibility. Remember, Facebook bought WhatsApp for $22 billion in 2014 and has yet to really monetize it. Now, that's not the only Facebook news today. It also reportedly canceled two of its most heavily marketed TV shows as part of a shift toward unscripted content. Um, Ed, I, I don't know why, maybe you do, why they canceled the ads, but The idea, I guess, of an ad is that they track what you do. The ad is targeted. If WhatsApp is supposed to be encrypted,
13: theoretically,
3: they shouldn't know what you're talking about to target the ad What are they
13: targeting you with? Also, WhatsApp users are not used to an ad environment anyway, right? So if you're used to Facebook, the regular Facebook blue, yeah, okay, I see ads in my my timeline. That's fine. On WhatsApp, if I see ads there, it sort of like it ruins or changes that people. Well, so how does it experience.
3: work? Because you don't have a feed. It's like it's basically if people if people haven't used WhatsApp, it's like getting an ad on your text messages. They're,
13: they're mm-hmm. created, like they try to create a, a section that looks like Instagram stories where you see a bunch of different things scrolling at once. Again, it's, it, they're trying to shoehorn in one product into another. It doesn't really well, work. Well, Morgan, they got to make money from it somehow. They spent
11: I $22 know, right? billion
13: dollars for it.
11: And this is one of the reasons that investors continue to be and Wall Street continues to be so bullish on this name because the opportunity to monetize WhatsApp. I wonder why they don't just go back to more of a subscription model, maybe, which is what was kind of in place, 99 cents a year, before facebook yeah. bought whatsapp but I, but I think
12: that's why they buy companies like we're facebook we bought you we want you to be us we don't have a monthly fee we have ads so we want you to look like us but if right?
11: you're not so going to that utilize that and yeah. leverage that data w- against well, ads, not, for example, I, theoretically
3: then, because whatsapp not is yet. encrypted they shouldn't not know the data and i think by putting ads are they are implicitly acknowledging yeah. that they're reading your your whatsapp unless
12: they're messages. non-targeted they could just be ads
3: like on right, regular But then be, yeah so around. okay so, so on what's my WhatsApp right? feed I'll get a you know an, an ad for something I'm completely disinterested
13: in that doesn't serve much purpose I, I think monetizing is the correct you're not going to pay 22 billion dollars for something you're not going to monetize yeah. I think they're trying or to move more to customer into service Facebook. customer service payments
3: right. could make a yes. lot of sense Round the horn how much would you pay for total privacy a year on WhatsApp
13: or Facebook 100 dollars a year
11: Yeah probably
13: Or there are plenty of other services now that are free or or near free that that have privacy that aren't owned by Facebook. Okay, topic two, Fitbit bringing blood oxygen monitoring on some of its devices.
3: (laughs) The new feature can be used to detect changes in breathing during sleep. Remember, Google is now going to own Facebook, Eric Chemi. Fitbit. 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 Does that make you? <laughs> this, this, so what was said, that one is in a breaking like news, a news headline. headline. Just, oh Facebook right. and WhatsApp. Hey, so if that was Google ever one. buys Facebook, you're going to come back and apologize. <laughs> <laughs> so <that was> <laughs> you're right, <laughs> man. Exactly. Breaking, <laughs> breaking news right, right here. That slip of the tongue. But, um, but no, but does, does this bother, this bother you?
12: Yes. We just talked about all of the WhatsApp, the tracking, the encryption. So with Fitbit now, if they're going to have all this extra data... But it's owned by Google, and Google, as the Wall Street Journal reported just a few days ago, they've got all these deals with hospitals. They are going big on medical records, yeah. health records. I don't think most consumers want Google to have this much information about you as a person. So we're already tracking your emails. I know everything you're searching on Google. I know all the videos you're watching on YouTube. Now I know everything about your health data. That seems scary. That seems like a lot.
13: Yeah,
11: which I think is exactly why I
13: think that's there cons- were— Concern, right? Exactly. Yeah. Sorry to drop there. Go ahead.
11: Um,
13: I, I think in this case, though, it's as much a move to differentiate themselves from Apple. Yeah. You know, what can we do with this that Apple doesn't do? And so it feels incremental. I think there's definite danger there. I don't know how smart Google ultimately is in trying to combine all these different things. They're a big, smart company. But they, they have a lot of missteps as well. I don't think it's as uh, sinister, maybe, as it
11: was. Yeah, and be. I don't think this deal has actually fully cleared all the hurdles. Shareholders have voted mm-hmm. for it, but there's still some, you know, regulatory review that's happening as well. But there were reports after this acquisition was announced that you had people that were canceling their subscriptions, to your point, uh, of Fitbit because they were worried about the privacy. There
3: data. are people that are just worried about Google. I mean, that's... I... The
11: other thing is, are you going to want to, like sleep with a Fitbit a on lot of your people wrist? people think you're that supposed to. A it shows when you're asleep and you know how long I'm you saying. sleep. No, but I'm saying that doesn't sound very comfortable
3: to me. I, I used to, I, I used to wear me. the Fitbit when I was doing the 5 a.m. show and I was so depressed by the data on sleep And I had to take it off. took it off. It was like three...
11: (laughs) That was me when I was working out. Two hours, 45 minutes. But
12: now Google will know in advance that you're depressed.
3: (laughs) I know that I'll get ads for (laughs) antidepressants in my Gmail feed. It all works out. It all works out. (laughs) All right, everything's fine. (laughs) Topic three is out of this world, Morgan. SpaceX preparing for its last big test before human spaceflight. Tomorrow, it will launch a Falcon 9 rocket. Then, 90 seconds later, which I'm told is the moment of peak mechanical stress, the Crew Dragon capsule will separate from the rocket... Float down to the Pacific, or the ocean, the with, a, with, a, with a parachute. If all goes well, it will take American astronauts into space. Morgan Brennan, this is your beat. You know, you've forgotten more about it than I've ever known. <laughs> but it kind of feels like 1962. Well, We're going to put a guy in a capsule, and he's going to come down via parachute.
11: That's exactly why they're doing this test. This is called the in-flight abort test. It's the last final big test for SpaceX with this Crew Dragon. If it goes well tomorrow, next couple of weeks to next couple of months, you're going to see astronauts get on board this thing and start flying up to the International What's Space America's Station.
13: What's this model
12: Stakes here? Stakes
11: have never been higher, especially given what happened with Boeing's Starliner test last month. Which,
13: which, did, which did not work. If it, no. it, it,
11: it, was, it did not make its way to the International Space Station. Unclear whether that's going to have to have another test before astronauts so get on board. So if
3: this works, Morgan, what does it mean?
11: If it works, they assess the data. NASA gives the green light. There's a date. The next, Starline, uh, the next um, Crew Dragon capsule is shipped down to Kennedy Space Center. Astronauts get on board maybe before the end of the first quarter. And we actually start being able to, for the first time since 2011, put astronauts in space from U.S. Soil. Can
3: we say, arguably, that if this goes well, and it looks like it is, that this is a, a, a time where the private sector and the public sector have really worked in harmony? They've this, worked together. This
11: is a quintessential public-private partnership, and it is being watched very closely, not only by those in, in agencies like NASA, but also the Defense Department, across the board, a new way of potentially what's doing the business things.
12: business model? Is this just for astronauts, or are we going to start to see high-net-worth oh, no. individuals go take space to us? Well, like I'm so course?
11: glad you asked that question, because NASA has already said, once this is operational, once these two spacecraft are certified, that they are opening it up for private astronauts to be able to pay for tickets and go to the International Space Station. So there'll be a else? day... Right. Possibly as soon as... The end we can year. go to the
13: International Space Station. Exactly, day. commercializing yeah.
3: space that's need, like really tens of millions of
11: dollars. And also, yes. how, well,
3: how much training would that require? Uh, like, you're not just gonna be like, okay, chemi yeah, you're, you're all I mean, you gotta train. know. Race car
12: driver. race car drivers, pilots, astronauts. That's all similar. You I've never slept
3: guy. in zero gravity. Not yet. Maybe bit bit, bit, bit Whatever it's called. Oh, oh com- yeah, connected. It's all connected. How's your blood oxygen up there? All right, finally. New Carolina Panthers owner and hedge fund billionaire and well-known CNBC guy David Tepper is backing up the truck to hire first-time NFL coach Matt Rule from Baylor. Rule reportedly getting a seven-year deal worth $60 million. The move is some league owners hot under the collar, and CNBC.com sports business reporter Jabari Young is here to tell us why they are so mad. Jabari, welcome. What did Tepper do wrong
10: here? Well, he did what he wasn't supposed to do, according to some owners. Now, listen. I don't count David Tepper's money. I don't have enough time to because he got a lot of it. But, you know, when you when you raise the price, as one person put it, you raise the price of pork. You know, these first-time head coaches, they usually come in on four-year deals, three, four-year deals. And what David Tepper did is he gave a guy seven-year deals. This guy's never coached in the NFL, never won a Super Bowl. He's a temple guy, never which won I love. That, never won a national championship Yeah, But he's a temple either. guy, so he deserves some of that money. All right, we, 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 we're temple dudes. But— He's never won a Super Bowl, and you have him making about eight to ten million a year. Now Bill Belichick makes about twelve million a year, Pete Kerr about eleven, Mike Tomlin and Sean Payton are in that mix too. So if they're making that and they've won Super Bowls and yet Matt Rule comes on the scene and makes eight to ten million dollars, I wanna this raise This is like
12: a classic right. country club situation, right? The That's NFL awesome. is the biggest country club there is. It'd be like you go to your country club and now you're tipping your caddy thousand bucks. Every time you play around the, so the golf, guy I golf everyone
13: is else is like, like, come on. A yeah, yeah. You're yeah. the coach to the caddy. I think that's exactly right. <laughs> I, well, I still I don't get what Tepper's doing here, really. I, I like the idea that you want to give some guy a chance. But, yeah, a four-year deal, maybe three, $4 million, That's what you're expecting for the guy. To think. As soon as you raise the price, like that, the
3: economics of... But that guy of- had, that had, like, 10 thing, years at but-
12: Baylor, though. He had, like, 10 years at Baylor. No, so he didn't you have you try
3: Baylor, He's only
10: He only no, had,
3: like, three. I think Ed's point is very good, which yeah, is that, Jabari, the risk is then the assistance it's not the just that all staff. the, the entire staff yeah. says well wait a minute i need to i need to make more cuz i was making half of the head coach well now half of that is a coaches lot more than are, i was coaches making coaches are
12: interesting because they are employees they're not management but right. they're not part of a union no. so players are in a union owners control that union but the coaches are just this other thing, and that's and what it's, makes yeah, these it's interesting.
6: Society
10: too. Because remember, yeah. coaching contracts are not a part of the salary cap, so they don't want to be reported. So that's why a lot of people like to suppress the numbers. So they don't we have know, to. I, I'm going to put you on the spot. Yeah. Okay, I apologize
3: in advance. Who's the, the lowest paid coach in football? Do we have any idea? Again,
10: the salaries aren't reported. We don't, and, so we don't know. And that once that guy, guy finds It better be, I don't know, who do you yeah. think it is? I have no idea.
3: I'd love you, to know who the yeah. lowest paid coach is. Well, it is. ain't Matt Rule. Yeah. Well, he should be. The reason I ask is whoever
13: that well, guy is, is probably going to get a slight raise. I mean, yeah. I would assume. Also, that person has more NFL experience than, I mean, and, and right. than rule coming cool. in. But
11: I wonder, I, and I, mind you, my lowest grade in high school was gym class, so I'm not like it was, you know, so was I'm not like local? the best sports person. Class? I'm not the best sports <laughs> person, but I wonder, you bring somebody like this in, Tepper has basically said he sees this as an opportunity, a, a person who could help build out this organization for, what, 30, 40 years? Yeah. Maybe the fact that he was on the college circuit, he has an eye for the up-and-coming talent. You have Tepper who's a new, you know, who's new to the game and he's looking to recruit. Some yeah, other and players.
10: he's a Steelers guy. So if he's gonna go pack, go to do the art rooney, you know, model, which is you bring a coach in and you let him coach no matter what, and you yeah. let him succeed, I'm fine with that too. But it's his money. He can do whatever he wants. Well, if, if they
3: go twelve and four for three years, it's fine. If they go four and twelve for three years, things aren't gonna be good. Jabari Young, Absolutely. thank you very much. By the way, you can read Jabari's story, go to CNBC.com. All right, Eric, Chemi, Morgan, Brennan, Edley. Also, thank you all very much. Rapid fire, like Seacrest, out. Let's get a market flash now on Boeing. Sue Herrera has the details. Sue,
8: I do indeed. And Boeing has been moving lower on this ABC report. Uh, The reporter tweeting out a short while ago that during testing, a testing audit last weekend, the 737's two flight computers were not talking to each other at startup. Unclear how long the fix will take, but it will be done as other return to service work is conducted. We reached out to Boeing, and this is the statement that they just put out. Quote, we are making necessary updates and working with the FAA on submission of this change and keeping our customers and suppliers informed. Our highest priority is ensuring the 737 MAX is safe and meets all regulatory requirements before it returns to service. But as we mentioned, Boeing's stock did move to session lows on that ABC report. Boeing has now responded. We'll see whether or not that moves the stock off of its lows of the day down just under 2%. Brian, back to you.
3: Well, okay, big news there. Thank you very much, Sue I'm sure we'll get more on Boeing as the day progresses. Coming up, presidential candidate and entrepreneur Andrew Yang speaking candidly about the markets, the economy, and the threat perhaps of Huawei. Deirdre Bosa sat down with him. We're going to have that coming up for you next. Well, we are just now 17 days away from the Iowa caucus, and the 2020 campaigns are in full swing. Dear Bosa got a chance to do a kind of a rapid fire interview with presidential candidate Andrew Yang last night. She started with a question that we've been asking here at CNBC. Is the stock market overvalued?
1: Overvalued.
8: Big tech, regulate or break up?
1: Um, you can't oversimplify to the, that extent. You need to actually dig in and solve the problems you're concerned about.
8: Recession in 2020, likely or unlikely?
1: I'd say a slight downturn in 2020 is very likely.
8: What would you do? Uh,
1: I would start putting more economic buying power into people's hands so that we have a trickle-up economy.
8: Private markets, frothy or not?
1: Definitely frothy. I mean, did you see what happened at WeWork? And they're not alone.
8: Harder job, Zuckerberg or Bezos? Uh,
1: (laughs) Wow, they both have very hard jobs, but I'm going to say... Uh, Zuckerberg.
8: Huawei threat. Over-exaggerated or underappreciated?
1: Uh, it's real. So I don't know if that means that it's uh, underappreciated,
3: but it's real. Now, Yang also said that of all the media platforms, he likes Instagram the best. Well, manufacturers are set to spend big money this year to fix a persistent industry-wide problem. We'll tell you what that is and the measures they're taking next.
7: The Exchange is now a podcast. Listen to your favorite parts of the show you might have missed. Sign up now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts.
3: The skills gap is impacting industries across the country, and manufacturing is no exception. With nearly half a million open jobs and a shortage of available talent, Companies in the sector are gearing up to spend big on training this year. Kate Rogers joins us now with more. Kate.
11: Hi, Brian. That's right. The inability to attract and retain talent has been the number one challenge for manufacturers over the past nine quarters, according to the National Association of Manufacturers, which cites that skills gap as a major concern for its membership. In fact, nearly 79 percent of manufacturers say they have openings that they're currently struggling to fill. Now, to help close that gap, new data just released from the Manufacturing Institute finds that companies in the sector are projected to spend at least $26.2 billion in 2020 on training initiatives for existing employees, that's known as upskilling, as well as training programs for new hires. Now, investing in this talent pipeline is really key. Nam projects 4.6 million manufacturing workers will be needed by the year 2028, but 2.4 million of those jobs might go unfilled if the skills gap isn't closed. The Manufacturing Institute has set a goal, Brian, of shrinking the skills gap in the sector by 25% over the next five years. Back over to you.
3: All right, Kate, why don't you come on over here? Because to help us get a better understanding of the skilled labor crisis facing what Kate just talked about is Carolyn Lee. She's the executive director of the Manufacturing Institute, the educational workforce partner. Of the National Association of Manufacturers. So, Carolyn, is the industry confident that this money and this training is going to work? Does it look like it is already?
2: It does. You know, we have two problems in the sector. The pro- we don't have enough people with the right skills, and we have a perception problem. So we need to double down on both investing and training, and that is what the report that came out today is all about, and we need to change the perception of the sector, and that's what we're going to do throughout 2020. Are
3: these 22-year-olds? Are they 18-year-olds? Are they 52-year-olds?
2: It's all of the above. We need an all-of-the-above solution. We've averaged about 500,000 open jobs for the last year, and so we have those jobs today, and as, you, as Kate said in her piece, we're going to have 4.6 million jobs that we need to fill between now and 2028. So we need to do all of it.
11: Carolyn, this is really having a big impact, I know, on NAM's membership. I think about a third of the workforce Uh, I mean, rather, the companies that were surveyed said that they're actually turning down job opportunities because they don't have the skilled labor needed in order to complete some of the work that's coming in. So what does this mean for the sector as a whole if these jobs can't be filled?
2: Well, if we can't be filled, then if these jobs can't be filled, then we're not going to be as competitive. And that's why there's no looking at what might not happen. We have to dive all in. And that's what the sector is doing to to rise to this challenge, to change the perception so that tomorrow's workers come into our sector. And that's what we're doing through our creators. Wanted campaign and also train those workers that we have today, because the worker you have today is the next job you need to fill.
3: Carolyn, you know, uh, one thing that that I've been talking about for a couple of years here is so-called geographic mobility. I mean, when I was 15, my family packed up our stuff and moved from San Diego to, to Virginia basically to start over. You know, if you're in Flint, Michigan, and you're underemployed or unemployed, and you'd like to move to Huntsville, Alabama, where there's a new car factory, but you can't sell your house without going into Hawk. You won't go in a lot of cases. What else can we do to get the maybe the skilled workers
2: to where the jobs are? Well, we need to tell the story. You're right. We need to show people where the where the jobs are and talk to them about the opportunities and talk to them about what this future in the sector so they can make that leap and take that opportunity because they know they'll have a growth trajectory. And that's what the story about the investment in training is really about. It means that your job will be continually evolving. You'll be upskilled and you'll be rising to new challenges. So you'll have an interesting career ahead of you, not just a job.
11: And I will add too, just in covering this. I mean, the average manufacturing worker made almost ninety thousand dollars last year, according right. to, to Nam. So these are very good paying jobs. A lot of them have benefits. We talked to a company yesterday is offering all kinds of things, including 401ks with matches, in addition to all of this training that's being done. So it, it is a career. It's certainly a good paying one. And as we know, yeah. there are a lot of open jobs.
3: Well, and there, but there's a lot of people around the world, Carolyn, who are also looking for a job. And if we want to have you know competitive manufacturing, we probably need workers as you said. Where does immigration fall in this debate?
2: Look, we know we don't have enough people. We're at historic low unemployment levels, and we have huge amount of open jobs. So we need everybody who is interested and has the capabilities to come to our sector. And that means part of the solution is absolutely immigration. And it's absolutely upscaling, reskilling, attracting more people mm-hmm. in away from other sectors and making sure we're reaching those high school students who are the next worker and ready to come to the sector very soon.
3: All right, Carolyn Lee and Kate Rogers, important discussion, big topic. Thank you both very much.
2: Thanks so much for having me. Well,
3: shares of Southern Company, eh, a little higher today, but they got an upgrade from KeyBank, saying despite rocketing last year, this energy and utility company still has a lot of room to run. We're going to find out why with the analyst behind the call next.
7: Deeper data at CNBC. December container volumes at the Port of Los Angeles fell 17.3% from year-ago levels. It is the fourth straight month of year-over-year declines.
3: Well, it has been a good week for the utility stocks and their investors. The sector hitting another all-time high. One of the drivers of that move has been Southern Company, who's also sitting at lifetime highs. What's driving utilities and why is Southern in the sweet spot? Let's bring in Sophie Karp, equity research analyst at KeyBank Capital Markets, just upgrading it to an overweight from a sector weight. Sophie, welcome to the program Pardon my cynicism, but why should anyone buy a utility, boring old utility, right, regulated growth, that's already up 30-plus
14: percent in a year? Hi. Thanks for having me. Well, I'll tell you why. Because Southern is a premium name, and despite its run that it had in 2019, it is still trading at a discount to the large regulated peers, and we think it should close that discount and then proceed and trade at a premium over time. Uh, people forget that historically Southern operates in extremely constructive jurisdictions. Uh, it, uh, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi are prime jurisdictions for electric utilities. They are business friendly places. They are open for business. We've seen constructive treatments there. Uh, and Vogel, which has been a major overhang on Southern Company, over the last few years, I would say, uh, is uh, is coming to a close. And we think we're ready to look past that and look past those overhangs, especially considering that Southern has consistently met all of the important milestones on the project since they took it over from the subcontractors. So we're actually quite positive on it. We think we're going to see a tightening of those milestones this year and more definitive time frames for those. And we, we think that the investors will look past that as well as, as Vogel uh, begins to um, uh, cl- enters the uh, service how important Sophie
3: is it where they operate they are as their name might imply I'm breaking news here southern they are in the south where the sort of the regulatory framework might be a little looser or more friendly versus say a highly regulated state like a California does that help them
14: well and uh, re- utilities are regulated everywhere, it's just how they regulate it, right? And Vogel operates very efficiently and because of how well operated and how well run this company has always been, they've built strong relationships with the stakeholders in their state. And that includes uh, you know, their customers and their regulators as well.
3: So how much more room to run do you realistically believe Southern has, Sophie?
14: Well, I'll tell you what, Southern trades at about two turns discount to uh, the average of the large cap uh, regulated peers. And we think it could go and trade at a multiple, uh, uh, at uh, two or three turns premium longer term. That's what we've seen there historically pre-Wogel. And we think once Vogel kind of moves to the rear view mirror, uh, this is where Southern's going.
3: Sophie Carp, KeyBank Capital Markets, upgrading. Who knew the utility stocks were going to be one of the best performing sectors the last 12 months? It sounds like you did. Uh, and, Sophie Carp, we certainly appreciate you coming on the network. We'll get you back on again soon. Thank you very Thank you. much. All right. So, folks, you hear a lot about ESG investing, environmental, social governance, right? Well, is it just talk? It is not. Tonight on Fast Money, we're going to have the CEO and chairman of BNP Paribas Americas to talk about ESG investing. And it's not just we're going to make a loan to buy a windmill. Have you ever heard about debt issued by major companies that fluctuates in rates based on carbon emissions goals? They exist, and the industry is booming. We'll talk to Johnny Philion tonight on Fast Money. I'll see you there for 5 p.m. Eastern Time tonight with that guy. It's going to be an interesting interview. It's going to open your eye, trust me, on a topic that many people are skeptical of. By the way, markets, new record highs. It's been a great week.
2: You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
12: If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay